The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Our Lord Jesus is the precious Lamb of God, which emphasizes the reality that He gave His perfect life as a sacrifice, voluntarily, as a substitution to appease a holy God, God the Father, who cannot tolerate sin, must punish sin, and and punished our sin through punishing the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago on the cross. And Jesus was buried, rose again from the dead, ascended back into heaven and reigns on high alongside God the Father and the Holy Spirit as the King of the universe. And those who believe that and know him personally, know him as Savior, And he's also the Lord of the church, and that's the privilege we have, Christians locally here, and also Christians all over the world. This day on Sunday, we call it the Lord's Day, have the privilege to gather together in local assemblies as fellow believers to worship this risen Lord Jesus Christ and the triune God. And we have that privilege this morning. We continue in our worship today as we look to God's Word together, the Bible, Scripture. So if you have a Bible, want to have that ready, we're going to be in Genesis Chapter 1, those of you who maybe are visiting today for the first time, I've met a couple of visitors already this morning. It's wonderful to meet you. Thank you for being here. At this time, we look to God's Word, Scripture, the Bible. We study it together, and we believe God speaks through the Bible to us, through the written Word on the pages of this book. We also believe that Part of the triune God is the person of the Holy Spirit, and he is our teacher, and he helps us understand Scripture. That's his promise. And so we have the privilege to do that today in Genesis chapter 1. We've been going through the book of Genesis. Genesis, the first book in the Bible. We actually started at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, then making our way through chapter 1. And today we're going to be looking at verses 26 and 27 As you came in, hopefully you were able to find a bulletin of the day. If not, I think there's a couple still back there. And on there, on one side, it's got some an outline for the sermons, if that's helpful for you. Today we're looking at Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And the title of today's sermon is Day 6. God creates the first two image bearers. Image bearers. Specific terminology that I tried to pull right out of verse 26 and 27 and represent it as literally as I could. I could have said God creates the first two people, the first two humans, the first male and female, all of which are true, all of which flow from the text. None of which emphasize the main point that I want to make this morning that is also in the text, and that's why I put the word image bearer, uh, that which bears the image and reflects the image of something else. So let's go ahead and look at our text together just by way of reminder and summary and review. We've been going in order through the first chapter of Genesis, which we believe is actually God's account of how all things came into being, how everything began from God's point of view. That's actually a startling claim. 
God doesn't have a body. God the Father doesn't. He's a spirit. He doesn't have hands like we do. He doesn't write with utensils like we do. How can they say that God basically is the author of Genesis chapter 1? Because he used a prophet, his spokesperson, his mouthpiece. That was Moses. Moses lived 1400 B.C., so over 3,000 years ago. We believe that God moved on Moses' heart to write down Genesis, the whole book, including chapter 1. And we believe that the Spirit of God enabled Moses, who was a finite man and a sinner, but loved God and knew God, could still be a conduit of communicating absolute truth. And we believe Moses did that in Genesis chapter 1 and represented exactly what God wanted us to know. And that was letting us know exactly how everything began, how everything got here, creation. So that's that's the theme of Genesis chapter 1, where God communicates and lets humans know how everything came into being because we weren't there. And he goes in order, and God tells us what happened at the very beginning, how it all got here. That was day one. God created everything out of nothing, at least in terms of the material uh, that he needed to, to fashion everything else we know as creation that is in the universe. So that was day one. God brought everything into existence out of nothing just by the sheer power of his word and on day one he had all the materials that he needed to create humanity and animals and plants and everything else as uh, the week progressed also on day one he just created all living matter he even created time on day one and light then on day two he created the sky as he begins day by day progressively fashioning the earth and the universe so that it is suited and fit to allow humans to live on the earth. That's his goal. That's his intention. He's going to climax with humanity, human beings as being the apex of his creation. So progressively, incrementally, day by day, he's preparing the earth and the atmosphere so that human beings can live on it vitally and successfully. So day two, he creates the sky. Day three, he actually creates land and separates the water from the land. He even creates vegetation or what we call plants on day three. Then on day four, he creates the sun, moon, and the stars. All the while, he's letting us know that these are all happening within a normal day, 24-hour days. On day four, he creates sun, moon, and stars, and he allows them for the first time to actually monitor and manage this 24-hour calendar that has been established from day one and then on day five he creates birds and fish as he fills the sky and fills the waters again preparing it ultimately for the first two humans who will represent him on the earth as his representatives trusting that they will be good stewards of all that he's entrusted to their care then last week we saw the beginning of day six and on day six god created all land creatures or all land animals. And God gave just three categories for all those land animals out there, just three categories. And we identified those as domesticated animals, animals that can be tamed or trained and used by humans, and then wild animals, beasts of the earth, and then also that last category of creeping things, uh, the idea of things that are crawl low to the earth, sometimes low, crawl or scurry low to the earth, and that included insects and spiders and muskrats and squirrels and moles and we saw some examples of what those were in the book of leviticus chapter 11 that actually defined exactly what god had in mind when he was talking about the creeping thing so those were all land animals so we are still on day six so this is really part two of day six and god has created all of that and now there's just one thing left to be created now notice that we haven't mentioned the word angels 
in the text of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 26 yet. Not explicitly. Angels have not been mentioned, although we did note in verse 1 when it says that God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens is the domain of where angels live in Scripture. That's where they are. That's where they reside. Uh, from the book of Psalms, from the book of Job, we get an indication that apparently angels were created before humans were because apparently angels were there at the sight of God when God created the first two humans in his image. That's what uh, Old Testament passages seem to indicate. So basically everything has been created, including good angels up to this point, and one thing remains, and that is humanity, the human race, the first people, our ancestors. And so that brings us to verse 26 and 27. So let's go ahead and look at it. And on your outline there, notice I have eight points there emphasizing really one main truth in verses 26 and 27. Actually, I'm really zeroing in on verse 26 and trying to take away a practical application of the truth there of what God did on day six when he created the first two people. Let me read verses 26 and 27. Keeping in mind this is after he has created all the animals. Verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Just two verses explaining the origin of the human race, explaining how human beings came to be, explaining from God's point of view how he brought the first two people into existence. Not just how, but even the very purpose, which we'll look out later as to why he brought humans into existence. It's utterly profound that God could do this in just two verses. Uh, the more I studied this week, just verse 26, the more overwhelmed I was becoming in terms of the profound truths that are in this verse and how loaded it is and how potent it is and thinking, wow, I'm, I'm never going to be able to effectually communicate all that is here. God, you're going to have to help me distill this down to the priorities. So we'll give it our best shot. But if you're reading Genesis chapter 1 and you're familiar with it, and you've noticed as you go through Genesis chapter 1, Moses was a phenomenal writer. He was uh, very gifted in literary ability. He was trained that way. We know that he, was, he got the finest education being raised in the house of Pharaoh in Egypt where they had great literary uh, capabilities and the highest of educational standards that you could possibly imagine. And Moses was privileged to receive such an education. Not only that, he's being moved by the very spirit of God to write chapter one exactly the way that God wants it. So Genesis chapter one is a literary masterpiece. It is true history. It is narrative in terms of its genre. It is simple as can be to read and understand at face value. It is divinely inspired literature or writing because it comes from the very mind of God. And at the same time, it's got amazing literary features woven all throughout that can be appreciated when you study them, not just in your English Bible, but particularly and especially in the original language that we have, which would be Hebrew, which very possibly is what Moses wrote this in. 
And so you can see many literary features throughout. One of the literary features that Moses uses is repetition. That doesn't mean it's poetry. Some people make that mistake. It's not poetry. Repetition in the Hebrew Bible, also this is true in the New Testament, most of the time, from God's point of view, is meant for emphasis, being emphatic, pay attention. Many times God does that, repeats himself to to make a point, to be repetitious, to wake up hardened hearts so that they might hear more clearly and realize, wow, this is a very important binding edict that we're accountable to. Repetition, repetition. Lord Jesus Christ, that was one of his favorite teaching techniques as a master rabbi, a master scholar of the Old Testament. And when he taught publicly, it was routine, especially in the book of John, where he would say, verily, 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 verily. That's repetition. Uh, Amen, amen is the Greek phrase. And amen, amen is the Hebrew phrase. That's repetition. That is not poetry. That is emphasis. And that's what you have with all these repeated refrains all throughout Genesis chapter one. God is being emphatic. One of the repeated refrains all throughout that we saw is then God said every time God does something and brings something amazing into creation on every single day, it begins the day with the phrase then God said and God creates by the power of his word. We saw that. So nine times in Genesis chapter one, we see that God uses that refrain. Then God said. And it introduces something significant that he creates on each of the six days. On day one, he said it once, then God said. On day two, he said it once. On day three, he said, then God said twice, Moses wrote down. Day four, that phrase is used once, then God said. Day five, it's used once. On day six, the passage we're in today, three times, this phrase is used, then God said. And there's something significant in each account. So actually, day six covers, if you look at your Bible there, day six covers verses 24 all the way down to 31. So it's the largest section In Genesis chapter 1, the greatest amount of detail is given about day 6 because day 6, I think, is the apex of God's creative activity. And that's why there is more information there. And emphatically so, he repeats that phrase, then God said, or Moses writes that three times. And with each refrain, then God said, something amazing and significant happens. The first time is verse 24, then God said, and that's when God creates all land animals. God does it again in verse 26, or Moses writes, then God said, and that's when he creates the first two human beings. And then a third time, unprecedented, verse 29, then God said, and then that's when God basically gives a blessing on the humans that he has created. So it's pretty amazing. These uh, repeated refrains all throughout the passage are for points of emphasis. And they are to be understood and appreciated. Another repeated uh, repeated refrain is, after you see, then God said, then typically is the phrase, let there be. Let there be. So verse 3, you see it the first time. Then God said, let there be. This is God talking. He's giving an edict. He's speaking his mind. He knows what he wants to do, and he verbalizes it through the power of his word. Let there be. Then God said, let there be. And then what follows is some instantaneous creation of whatever it is God willed and decreed. So the first one in verse 3, then God said, let there be light. And instantly there was light. Where did light come from? God created it through the power of his word. There is no other alternative. This is what God said. And that's on day one. Let there be Let there be, let there be. This is repeated all throughout up, even up to day six. 
Sometimes it's let there be, like let there be light. Sometimes it's adjusted a little bit, and the phrase is let the waters do whatever. Let the waters bring forth. So that two times that phrase is used. So three times it's let there be, two times it's let the water bring forth, and then two times it's let the earth bring forth, like the land animals. But this phrase, let there be, it's a command. It's an imperative. It's from God. It accurately reflects his will. It is determinative, and it happens instantaneously at the very moment that he spoke it. It is a powerful reality. Let there be. Similar to Jesus, as he's on the boat, and there's a storm, and his apostles are with him, and they think they're going to die, and they're having a heart attack, and Jesus is sound asleep during the storm. They wake him up. Lord, we're going to die. And then basically Jesus says, let there be. Or really, silence. Be calm. In other words, he calms the storm with the power of his word based on his will manifest through the divine decree through his words. Jesus is God. Jesus was God. What Jesus did there is very similar to what God did here. Let there be this amazing, supernatural, almighty power that God has to bring in to reality something that didn't exist before he spoke it. This is creative power on the part of almighty creator God who is infinite. Let there be, let there be, let there be. Theologians over the years have called this fiat creation. Fiat, not the car, the cool car, you know, the fiat, which I would imagine is related to that. It's a Latin word, fiat. Comes from the Latin. And the idea, a fiat is a decree. It's like an official royal binding decree that's issued through divine or actually royal proclamation. That's what a fiat is. So we call this fiat creation. So... Up until humanity, God has brought all things into existence through what's called fiat creation. He brought it in through the power of his word, through a formal decree that he gave. Fiat creation. Now you know a little Latin if you didn't know that. Fiat creation. Now if you're reading in Genesis, then you hit verse 26, there are some dramatic differences and alarming, startling, shocking changes that the reader should be aware of. And hopefully you noticed it in verse 26. Let's look at it again. Then God said, okay, that's been normal. That's repeated over and over again. Okay, but then instead of saying, let there be or let the waters bring forth or let the earth bring forth, which has been the pattern, this in this impersonal fiat maxim of creation, there's this startling difference in verse 26 with respect to humanity. Then God said, let us. Wow. If you have an English Bible like mine in the New American Standard, the us is a personal pronoun and the the you is capitalized. The you is capitalized because the translators of the New American Standard believe that the us, the personal pronoun, is in reference to God, Elohim. God's name in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is Elohim. That's who God is. Chapter 2, he's called Yahweh. And here, there's a capital U. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness so there's this change in terms of all of a sudden whoever this creator is he starts to get very personal when it comes to the first two humans didn't do that with plants didn't do that with fish didn't do that with birds didn't do that with land creatures but with the first two humans all of a sudden the creator is getting very intimate and personal let us make man in our image so that's the first thing that should jump out is that this pattern has changed and has become very personal the other thing that should jump out at you is that when god is talking he didn't say let me make man in our in my image 
It's not singular, it is plural. That's very specific and definitive also in the Hebrew terminology that is used in this passage. The Hebrew passage in uh, verse 26 has pronouns that are plural and are accurately translated in your English Bible as us and our likeness, which clearly indicates a plurality that's inescapable. And these are the pronouns that are plural. So that's an accurate translation. Then God said, let us make man in our image. As a matter of fact, another thing in verse 26, when it says, let us make the verb for make in Hebrew is it's a plural verb. So it's a plural verb used with a plural pronoun. Let us make contrast that with Genesis chapter one, when it said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the the verb there is singular. Singular. Actually, the verb in verse 27, God created man. Verse 27, the verb created is singular. Verse 26, let us make the verb is plural. This is amazing. This is startling. What does this mean? God is talking. God is one. We only believe in one God. We don't believe in many gods. We don't believe in polytheism. That is clear in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Polytheism, more than one God, is condemned in Scripture as blasphemy, unacceptable. That's basic. It's in the Ten Commandments. There is only one true God. Yet here, God, Elohim, says, let us make man in our image. He is speaking in a plurality. And just from the Greek grammar, the syntax in particular being used, you have to conclude that God is actually talking to himself. He's talking to himself. And if you take it at face value, there's a plurality in God. There's only one God, but within this one God, there is a plurality. That is a mystery. That is amazing. That is uh, mind-boggling. And for 3,000 years since Moses wrote this, many scholars have debated what does this mean. Some got it right. Genesis was one of the first books written, so there's a lot that's still cryptic from God's point of view in terms of revelation, many shadows, things we don't fully understand. But from Genesis on, then more and more revelation comes, and we get more and more truth about who this God and who this creator is, and that how can he be one and yet be have a plurality in his nature? And in fact, he does. And then in the New Testament, we're, get, we're given more information and more revelation through the 27 books of the New Testament, but the ultimate revelation of Almighty God through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself is and was God, and the perfect representation of God's very nature, says Hebrews chapter 1. So we can, with the New Testament and progressive revelation, look back and even see more specifically what God was talking about. It's amazing. So I would propose, based on the rest of Scripture, When God is talking in day 26, he purposefully communicates in a different manner because he's reaching the apex of his creation, and that would be the first two human beings, and they would be unlike plants and everything else, all inanimate objects. They'd be totally unlike all other animals. They would be distinct. They would be unique. They would be used for a very special purpose by God Almighty on planet Earth. And that's why this creation approach about the first two humans is so distinct and so different and here so personal and even pulls back the curtain a little bit allowing us to see the very nature of what god is like in terms of being a plurality it's amazing this is not the only time that this phrase is used where god is talking among himself by the way he's not these are these other suggestions that well this is a plural of majesty well it's not we know that for a fact because 
Personal pronouns are never used for plurals of majesty. You can't define a plural of majesty from plural pronouns or verbs. It's only true of nouns. The unique thing about this is there is a plural verb with plural pronouns. Well, he's talking to the angels. No, he wasn't, because human beings are not made in the image of God. It's clear. There's a plurality within God's nature, and that's what he's doing here. This is not the first time God did this. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Look, just flip over Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. They disobey. God curses the snake. God punishes Adam and Eve. He curses the earth. He banishes them from the Garden of Eden, or he's about to. And God makes this self-reflected inner Trinitarian comment and conversation that we are allowed to listen in on. Verse 22 of Genesis 3. Then the Lord God. Now, this isn't just Elohim. This is Yahweh Elohim. The book of Romans lets us know that Jesus is Yahweh. From the way Paul uses the Old Testament. The Father is Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. The Spirit is Yahweh. There's only one God. Well, that doesn't make sense. I know that's amazing. But anyway, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man, humans, Adam and Eve. The man has become like one of us here. See, God is talking and he uses this plurality again. He's knowing good and evil. So again, God uses the plural. Go flip to Genesis chapter 11 real quick. Remember the Tower of Babel? God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, spread, dominate, rule over to the ends of the earth. And they disobeyed and they didn't. Genesis 11 verse 1, now the whole earth. These are all people on earth at that time. Used the same language and the same words. It was just one language everybody could understand each other. Verse 2, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. So instead of spreading out, they settled. They weren't supposed to do that. That's disobedience. Verse 3, then they said to one another, come, let us. This phrase is repeated a couple times, verse 3 and verse 4. Come, let us, come, let us, come, let us do our sinful, disobedient deed. And then ironically, in verse 7, God says, come, let us. You want to do your come, let us, come, let us. Verse 3, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they burn bricks and they start building this temple. And they're trying to reach heaven. Uh, verse 5, Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower of Babel, which the sons of men had built in disobedience. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Verse 7, here it is. Come, let us go down. That's what God said. God said, come, let us. God is talking among himself, within himself, and it is a plurality in his very nature. From the New Testament and even other Old Testament passages, we know today that that is the triune God talking among himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who existed and have existed for all eternity as an uncreated God are talking among themselves. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We even have just a couple of, just Psalm, there's many I could give. I'll just give you one example. Psalm 110, listen to this. This is a, a famous psalm because this is quoted in the New Testament. I think it's even quoted by Jesus. Psalm 110. Listen to the first verse of Psalm 110. Psalm of David. So this is in like 1000 BC. The Lord, that's Yahweh, said unto my Lord, with a capital L in my English Bible. It's two different words referring to God. 
Yahweh, and then a different word referring to God. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. What is that all about? The Lord, God said to God. Yahweh said to Adonai. Yahweh said to the Lord. Then you go to the New Testament, and the New Testament explains what that verse means. It means that God the Father said to the pre-incarnate Jesus. That's what Psalm 100... So there's an example of God talking within himself in an inter-Trinitarian fashion, and that's exactly what's going on in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So here's the Father, the pre-incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and they are one God... They are equal in essence and nature, yet three different persons. And they say to one another with perfect harmony, which is amazing. Let us make humans or man in our image. According to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea. So the triune God says he wants to make humans in his image. So I just want to make a comment on on some of these words right here. He says, let us make man. Uh, That refers to not just males, that's humanity. Because uh, the word for humanity or humankind, especially in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 through 5, Adam or Adam is used different ways depending upon the context. Sometimes Adam or Adam just refers to generic mankind. It includes all humans. Sometimes it has an article. Sometimes it doesn't have an article the in front of it. Adam, humankind. Sometimes Adam refers to uh, males or a man in particular as a proper name. It was Adam. That was his name. So it can be used that way as well. Those are the two most common ways. And it, there's, uh, they're used different ways in the first five chapters of Genesis. And the context determines the meaning. We know that uh, he's talking about humankind in verse 26 when he says, let us make man. It's not just let us make males in our image. It's let us make all humans in our image because it's defined in verse 27 what that means. God created man... That's with a definite article. God created man, Adam. God created man or mankind in his own image. And then he gets specific. Here's how he did it. In the image of God, he created mankind or humankind, male and female. He created them. He uses the word created three times. It is emphatic and it's very specific. God creates humankind. He creates humankind, the human race in his image, unlike animals and anything else. And the specific way that he did it is he created humankind in his image via a man and a woman together. And what this looks like in the detailed commentary, you can put Genesis chapter 2 right in there and read Genesis chapter 2, and that's exactly how it happened. So from God's point of view, a man and woman together reflects the fullness of the very image of God. I need to explain those two terms in verse 26, where it says image and likeness. Let us make the first two human beings in our image, in the image of God, and also according to the likeness of God. These are two different words, two different prepositions on the front of those words. Some people say, well, these are just synonyms, and Moses is repeating himself, and there's no distinction. That's not true. These words are used differently. There's a nuance to each one in terms of emphasis. There's even a different pronoun or preposition attached to each word. There's a preposition on the front of Image, the word in, legitimate representation. And then there's a different preposition used on the front of likeness, and that's according to. They are complementary words, yet they are distinct words. Together, they represent the full image of God in humanity. Just a couple of comments on each of these words. And people have debated theologians for thousands of years, but 
just taken scripture literally at face value, starting with the Hebrew text, as especially how these words are used all throughout the Old Testament. And then you distill it all down. Here are the main things these words mean. So the first one in our image, the word image, Salem, with it, it's kind of hard to say with the T S E L E M, Salem. What does that mean? Well, the etymology means to carve out or to cut out. Salem. It is used in reference just about every single time to a physical object, a tangible, empirical, physical entity. That is important because I think that's one of the nuances of this word. God is invisible and doesn't have a body. Yet Salem refers to everything in that which is physical. So image. So whatever it is that's going to represent God, it's going to be a physical thing, unlike God, who is not physical. It's going to be tangible. So that's hugely important. It is used in the Old Testament with reference to false idols. I mean, literally stones and rocks that supposedly represent gods that you cannot see. Referring to tumors that were carved to look like a tumor. Uh, Images, legitimate images, illegitimate images. But the emphasis here is on that which is carved out by man. And it is physical, a physical representation of something, something else. And also the nuance there is of similarity. It is a reflection. Image. In the, in the New Testament, uh, the New Testament word is icon. A, a cone, icon. That's where we get the word icon. An icon is like an idol or a statue. Hebrew says that Jesus is the image. Jesus is the perfect image. Jesus is the perfect icon of the nature of God. Hebrews chapter 1, or no, Colossians chapter 1, sorry. So what was Jesus? Well, Jesus was the physical manifestation of eternal God in a body. So the emphasis there is the physical manifestation of what God is like. Not what God looked like, but what God's nature was like, put in a physical form. And that's what this is. That's what God is saying. We're going to make something physical that represents us on the earth so that we can be represented, the triune God who has no body, on the earth on our behalf. And it's going to be done through a physical structure, manifesting God's virtues, attitudes, attributes, his heart, his will, those things. Because it's a physical world and he needs a physical representation, or he chose to use a physical representation on the world. So that is the first word, image, in our image, emphasizing that which is physical. The second word, uh, which is translated as according to our likeness. That is a good translation. According to the likeness of God. This is the Hebrews chapter one word where Jesus is called the likeness. The exact representation of his nature. Hebrews one three. Jesus is the exact representation of his essence or his nature. The likeness. Uh, the etymology of this word. That which is similar but not always that which is the same. So similarity, but not necessarily sameness. Say it again. That's important. Similarity, but not necessarily sameness. Meaning it preserves, there's a similarity, there's a reflection, but it's not identical. It's not the exact same. It preserves a distinction between the creator and the creation, which is very important. So when it says that God is going to make humans in his image, he's not going to say, he's not saying he's making little gods, little deities, or those who can become deities like us. I think this word prohibits that reality. There's a similarity, but it's not identical in terms of being utterly the same, especially in its very nature. But it will be a true representation of some attributes of God the Creator. 
And these two words beautifully go together, one emphasizing the physical nature of this representation on earth, and then the second word likeness, preserving that distinction between humanity and the transcendent, almighty, eternal, infinite creator God. And human beings will never become that. This is radical in terms of truth and worldview. This is ra- what I just said is radical in terms of worldview. Because what I just said sets Christianity apart from every other worldview on planet Earth. The, even New Age religion or Hinduism, the idea that you can become more and more one with the essence of the universe, which is a deity or which is God. We are working our way to become gods or even something as simple as Mormonism, which teaches the same thing. You can become a God. That's the goal. No, you can't. That is not what this means. And at the same time, it is utterly profound in terms of elevating the value and the dignity of human beings. We are made in the image of God. Animals are not made in the image of God. And nothing else in creation is made in the image of God. Angels are not even made in the image of God. Contrary to John Calvin. Only humans are. Psalm 8 talks about this, the elevation of humanity even being greater than angels. And the book of Hebrews talks about how we are greater than angels. And angels, they are just mere servants of God and ultimately of humanity. Human beings are made in the image of God, the greatest of his creation. Utterly profound. As a matter of fact, as I was thinking about this, just these two verses alone, Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-26, are probably the two greatest pillars in establishing a very distinct Christian worldview. Because there's nothing in ancient Near Eastern ideology, theology, philosophy that comes close to describing these two realities. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. An almighty, eternal, independent, perfect, holy, sovereign God who is spirit and has always existed instantaneously by the power of his word brought all things that exist into existence in a moment of time out of nothing by the sheer will of his power. And he is the ultimate creator. And he is forever separated from his creation as the transcendent God. And he brought everything else into creation in like manner through the power of his word. The ultimate, one and only, perfect creator. That is different than every religion ideology in the history of humankind that doesn't flow from the Bible. Everything else is just a hodgepodge of human thought, tradition, and sometimes throwing some Bible verses in there. The God is creator... And on and on it goes. But that is utterly distinct. That needs to be at the ground floor of your worldview. Your your proper view of God as sovereign, independent, self-sufficient, eternal creator. And everything else is contingent upon him. Utterly profound. The other one is this verse right here. Because this is the rock bed of your worldview as a Christian. And also the rock bed of your worldview and a pillar of your anthropology, your view of humanity. That you were made in the image of God. I could have got up here this morning, first thing, and said, and pointed my finger at you and said, you know what? You are special. Yeah, look, you're laughing. Then I make you, you are special. And you're special. And, you know, you're unique. You're valuable. You are sacred. You know, that's not heresy. Actually, everything I just said is true. Understood in its proper context. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian this morning. You could be an atheist here this morning, a total pagan, a Satanist. An agnostic, it doesn't matter. Those all would have been true of you because you're made in the image of God. Christians are made in the image of God. Unbelievers are made in the image of God. Every baby that's born into this world is made in the image of God. While that baby's in the womb, it is made in the image of God. 
at the moment of conception, that baby is made in the image of God. That is the testimony of Scripture. Here is where it begins, and it's defined in other places, more specifically throughout the Bible. So this is what sets Christianity, a true biblical worldview, apart from every other ideology currently on planet Earth today and also throughout all of history. The Bible is the only book... Christianity is the only religion, Old Testament faith is the only religion that even teaches this about origins. No other origin story, Babylonian, Mesopotamian, Egyptian, ancient Near Eastern, none of them had an origin story about where humanity came from like this. That the create perfect, eternal, sovereign creator God made humans as the apex of his creation in his very image. That is utterly unique and distinct to the Bible. And it remains true today. When God did this and he made the first two human beings in his image, it means that the first two people, Adam and Eve, would somehow reflect characteristics or attributes or something about the nature of God in their very essence and being. And actually, the Bible goes on to explain what those things are. They were made in the image of God. They were made like God. Something different about God, but they were made like God. There are similarities. And they are utterly profound. And they are inherent. They are innate. They are what's called ontological. They cannot change during the course of your lifetime. They will always be true of you. The fact that you're made in the image of God. It doesn't matter where you live, where you were born, what color your skin is, what language you speak, how much money you make, whether you're male or female, whether you're transgender or not. Every human being was made in the image of God. That's why it is so utterly profound. And we're going to talk more about this. Now, this is before sin entered and messed everything up because God cursed Adam and Eve after they sinned. Well, did they lose the image of God? Absolutely not. Because in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Noah got off the ark and God reminded Noah that him and his seven family members were made in the image of God. And therefore, murder is wrong. Taking another human life illegitimately is wrong. That is sinful. That's reiterated in uh, the book of Moses in the Ten Commandments as well. And then we go to the New Testament in James chapter 3 in the New Testament. And James reminds us that, yes, even though human beings are sinful, they are made in God's image and they are precious. They are sacred. And therefore, James doesn't say you shouldn't murder a human being because they're made in God's image. He says you shouldn't slander a fellow human being with your mouth. Why? Because they are sacred. They're made in God's image. So that's very practical. When you're driving on the freeway, somebody cuts you off and they're a rude driver. You don't slander them, according to James. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. Well, he cut me off. He's a jerk. He's an idiot. Too bad. Don't slander them. They are made in the image of God. That's God's view of people. So human beings, they are sacred before God. God is the only he owns them. He determines the length of their life. He's the only one who can determine when their life should be taken. Ezekiel 18 is clear. God said, every soul is mine. So the question is, well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean? How are we like God? So let me just roll through these before we go into uh, communion. And, and we'll go quickly. How are we like God? Well, according to the Bible, here are our summary points. Number one, we are like God. We're distinct from God, but we are like God. There are attributes that make us like God. Number one, we are rational beings. Rational beings. That's all over the Bible. God said, your thoughts are not my, my thoughts, but we, we have thoughts and we're self-reflected because we get that from God. We are self-reflective, thinking, intellectual beings with a mind. We have the mind of Christ if you're a Christian. Utterly profound. 
that's we reflect that and get that attribute from God. Number two, we are volitional beings. That means we have the ability to choose. We have a will. We make choices. As Joshua said to the people this day, whom do you choose? As for me and my house, we will choose the Lord. He exercised his will, his volition, his ability to choose a deliberate, thoughtful process that you are accountable and responsible for those decisions. Animals don't do that. Plants don't do that. Animals react out of instinct. Humans have volition. We got that from God. God is a volitional being. We have been made volitional beings. Number three, we are emotional beings. God is an emotional being. God has the full gamut of emotions. There's not an emotion that humans have that God doesn't have somewhere in Scripture. You mean anger? Yes. God gets angry with the perfect sinless anger and jealousy. We have anger. Sometimes we sin in our anger. Sometimes we sin in all of our emotions. Nevertheless, we get those emotions from an emotional creator being named God. Number four. God is an eternal being. Humans are immortal beings. In other words, once a human being comes into existence, that human being will never die. Its soul will exist forever. That's what immortality means, will never die. God is eternal. God is also immortal. In other words, he will never die. And human beings, we aren't eternal, but we are immortal. We will never die. So even if you leave this earth dying, either believing in Jesus, rejecting Christ, your soul You will live on forever, for all eternity. You will never die, and that's true because you were made in God's image. Plants, animals, there's no promise in Scripture that plants and animals live beyond this life. Not true of humans. Number five, spiritual. God is a spiritual being. He's a religious being. He is the creator. He demands worship. He deserves worship. He requires worship. He's seeking for true worshipers, says John 4. And he made human beings in his image so that they might worship him. So says John chapter 4 in Acts Chapter 17, and God made us as a result spiritual being. Every human being is made in the image of God, which means every one of us is a spiritual being or a religious being. Well, I'm an atheist. I don't worship anything. Yeah, you do. You're religious about something. You just got to scratch the surface and dig deep enough. Romans 1, number 6. God is the creator and a creative being, and he's made human beings creative beings in two different ways that reflect him, but are also distinct with the rest of creation. God is able to bring an immortal human soul into existence. And he did it with Adam and Eve. Think about that. Whether they want to or not be born, whether they want to experience reality or not, whether they want to live for eternity or not, God brings eternal souls into existence that will never die. And he's actually given that ability to human beings, amazingly, by through propagation. We can bring mom and dad... Male and female can bring another eternal soul into existence. They will live on for all eternity. That is, that's actually kind of frightening for those of you who are parents. Wow, I've brought four eternal souls into existence. That's a creative power that comes from only being made in the image of God. And then also just this, this creative artistic ability that we have that reflects God's creative ability. Human beings create beautiful things. Animals don't do that. Plants don't do that. Bees are not creative. Bees are industrious. Bees have been making the same looking hive for 6,000 years. Do you know that? They have not advanced one iota in technology. Like, when are you going to advance? Wow, that's the same as uh, 5,000 years ago. Because they have zero creativity. Not so with humans made in the image of God. Number seven, God is a social being. Eternally, it's his very nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is utterly profound. If you think about it, meditate on it. Think about the God of Islam, Allah. Did you know he's a singular unitary being? 
And theoretically, before Allah created anything, Allah was existing all by himself as one God, but as one person for all eternity. Because he's an eternal being. He was never created. Allah. So what in the world was Allah doing before creation all by himself? Nobody to talk to? I Twiddling his thumbs? I have no idea. The triune God of the Bible before creation for all eternity and eternity past? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were having beautiful, ongoing, intimate, perfect fellowship and intimacy with one another. Face to face, says John chapter 1, verse 1. That That is just, wow. That is profound. God in his very nature is a social being. And when he made humanity in his image, he didn't make just one being. He made a male and female together. And apart from them, they are incomplete. Apart from them, they don't fully reflect the image of God. Notice the passage said in verse 27, God said it created mankind in the image of God. In the image of created them, male and female together fully reflect the complete image of what God is like in all of his attributes. If you just have male, you don't have the fullness of God's image. If you only have female, you don't have the fullness of God's image. It's man and woman together. And that's why before sin entered in Genesis 2.18, when God only had up to that point created Adam, he said it is not good for man to be alone. That's not the full image of God. And that's why ever since Adam and Eve were created, they were created to be in community. They were created to be in social relationships, starting with marriage. And beyond that, it's the family. And then it was the community of Israel. And then it was the body of Christ, the church. And in heaven for all eternity, it's going to be the same thing. We're going to be in the family of God. God's point of view always with respect to humanity is never in an isolated situation outside the community of God and other believers. It's always the entity of a community. So the worst thing in the world for a human being is to be by themselves, is to be isolated. And that's why the book of Proverbs says, he who isolates himself is a fool. And the worst thing you can do in prison to torture somebody and break them down is to put them into solitary confinement. It goes against the DNA and the grain of everything that God made a human being to do in community with others. And this is an amazing way that we have been made in the image of God. And then finally, number eight. Uh, human beings have made, been made upright. That reflects the image of God. And actually, this, this is in reference to the physical body that God has actually given Adam and Eve and humanity. You mean the human body is in the image of God? I'm going to say yes. <clears throat> I put upright for a reason. We stand upright. This is unique. Monkeys don't stand upright. No other land animals stand. Most of them are on all fours. They are down. They're in a Really, what are they? A subservient position. That is by design. That is by intention. The body that gave, uh, God gave man and woman was one that would fulfill his mandate for their purpose on earth, and that was to rule over creation. In ancient Egypt, on the caves and the walls, they had uh, these pictures written on the walls that still exist today called the Ra, R-A, and it was the, the sign of the king. And the king was always upright like this with his hands like this. And this meant dominance. This meant reigning. This meant ruling. This is a perfect reflection of Jesus Christ, who is king of kings, lord of lords. And we, I can't go into it more and more, but theologians for the last 2,000 years have talked about this attribute that is true, that human beings, Adam and Eve, were actually made in the likeness of God with respect to their body and how God assigned them a physical body in the way that he did in light of the Christ who was to come and the ultimate ideal for humanity is resurrection humanity. And that's why Philippians 3 says, human beings 
that are Christians are going to be resurrected and our resurrected body is going to be after the pattern of Jesus Christ in his image. So the very physical body we possess speaks of representing God on earth. Absolutely amazing. We'll talk more about that in the upcoming weeks. Well, anyway, I know that's that's a lot of information, a lot to meditate upon, a lot to think on. At the same time, a lot to thank God, our amazing creator, for. And with that, we have a time to meditate in our own hearts. And I'm going to ask the uh, ushers now to distribute our the elements for our communion that we're about to partake. I would invite you, if you're a Christian, you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you believe that you are a sinner, that your sin deserves de- the death penalty from God, who is holy and the one who created you. And you believe that Jesus who is God, came down to earth to live a perfect life, willingly submitted himself to execution, to die in your place. And through his power and the Father's power and the Spirit's power, he rose again from the dead, conquering death and sin on your behalf and my behalf. Then he ascended back into heaven. And he's calling all sinners to believe in who he truly is, to repent of their sin, to turn to him, to ask for forgiveness of sin, to ask for spiritual life, eternal life, to be reconciled with the Holy God. And the way we do that is not by our good deeds, but just by believing, believing that message and believing God at His Word. And if you believe that sincerely, and you've cried out to the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, I, I've sinned against you. I need, I need you to save me. Save me from my sin. Cause me to be born again. Make me a child of God. If you believe that, understanding what you're saying, you believe that and you really mean it, God will answer your prayer right on the moment, right when you pray that prayer, and you'll become born again. A a Christian, right on the spot. Adopted and put in the family of God forever. Absolutely amazing. And so that's what we celebrate through communion, because Jesus said to do this. He told Christians to celebrate communion over and over again until he returns, because he's coming back. And we do it through symbols, the symbol of the bread, which was his, his body that we'd give up as a substitute, and then... The drink is the substitute of his blood that would be shed. In other words, he would die for sin. And so that's what we're remembering when we do communion. So if you're a Christian, you are welcome to participate in communion with us in just a moment. And I'll give you just a moment to pray quietly in your own heart, thanking God for being a creator in light of what we're learning in Genesis, being our creator, being your creator. And then also, since you know him, thank him for being your savior and confess ongoing sin to him and he will he's going to answer that prayer and so really communion is a very personal time between you and god it's supposed to be an intimate time a refreshing time it's actually a time of celebration and thanksgiving is the word that paul uses in first corinthians 10 thanksgiving it's reason to rejoice based on your relationship with the lord jesus christ so that's our wonderful and great privilege we have as christians Uh, before we take together and celebrate communion i just want to read one verse it's from the new testament it's john chapter one and it kind of ties in with the sermon today it says in the beginning sound familiar in the this is john chapter one in the new testament in the beginning genesis 1 1 says in the beginning and not in the beginning god created the heavens but in the beginning was the word And verse 14 says that word was Jesus. In the beginning, before creation, Jesus 
existed, not in his bodily form, but he existed as a person, as the second person of the Trinity. He existed with the Father before creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was deity. Jesus, before he had a body, was deity in the beginning, before creation. And he was with God. He was toward God. He was face to face with the Father in close intimacy before creation. That is literally what that verse means. So Jesus existed before creation. Jesus was deity before creation. Jesus was with the Father before creation. Jesus was face-to-face and intimate with the Father before creation. And then it goes on and says in verse 3, All things came into being through Him. So when we're, we're studying Genesis, we're talking about the Creator. And the, well, who's the Creator? Who created everything? We just think God, generically, Elohim. Many of us think the Father, John 1 3 says all things came into being through the word through Jesus and apart from Jesus nothing came into being that has come into being Jesus was in the world yet the world was made through him wow so Jesus isn't just the savior Jesus is the creator and John 5 Jesus said and as a result he is the only judge so go ahead and take uh, a moment right now, I'll give you about a minute just to reflect on these amazing truths as you talk to the Lord Jesus, your Savior, in your own heart. Just before Jesus died and gave his life, he spoke to his apostles and said to eat and drink in his name. Uh, let's do that this morning together. I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer. You could pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning and just what a privilege it is always to to be with the church, the body of Christ, the family of God. We've given the privilege of this day to do it, to be with these saints. We thank you for the opportunity. We also thank you for your real presence among us in our hearts and through your spirit. You are here. Absolutely amazing. Thank you for the treasure of your word. And you're committed to being our teacher with the Holy Spirit to help us understand these truths some truths which are very difficult to understand, some that can only be believed by faith, and we need your help in that regard. And also we need your Holy Spirit to apply these truths to our lives so that it makes a difference, so that it's practical, and so that we can please you. We thank you for the death, the perfect life, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the reality of ongoing forgiveness of sin, The amazing promise that if we have a relationship with you, we cannot lose our salvation. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And that we're secure in our relationship with you in this life, but also for all eternity. We give you the great, we give you the praise and the glory for that just incredible and amazing truth. And we thank you for the privilege we had to take communion this morning. I pray now, God, your special blessing on these dear folks that you would go before them. And that we'd be mindful of you every day, seeking to give you the glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.